The Persian king returns from war to run a palace beauty contest. And after the contest, the Jews in Persia face an existential threat on The Bible Brief. Our goal is to get 100 new monthly supporters before the end of 2023. Will you be one of the 100? Give today at BibleLit.org. Xerxes, the king of Persia, is back in Susa and he's dejected. As the ruler of the most powerful empire in the world, his great army had been defeated in a series of battles to the east. There in the northern portions of the near Mediterranean, around the smaller Aegean Sea, his army encountered some very strong city-states. After his father's great successes in the area, Xerxes had assembled an incredible force in the ancient world. A force that one ancient historian said was in excess of five million men. Xerxes had assembled a vast army, and he was set to finally conquer these rebellious city-states, especially those of Athens and Sparta. For a while, he had had smashing success, even though the resistance had been fierce. Soon, however, the Greek states formed an alliance of sorts as they saw the advance of the Persian army. And this caused a strategic headache for the vast empire. The formerly disunified, were acting as one to protect their governance and way of life. In 480 BC, the Persians initially advanced with ease, but later in the year they were famously stalled for three days at the shoreline pass of Thermopylae. There, 300 soldiers of Sparta fought to the death to forestall this vast force from reaching further into the Greek states. While those 300 ultimately died in the endeavor, they set the stage for continued resistance by the Greeks. Resistance that would ultimately spell the defeat of Xerxes' forces within the year. Xerxes' vast army and navy had been strategically outmaneuvered and defeated. And as a result, the king found himself back in Susa the citadel, the governing capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. He was back, and he was dejected. His dreams of expanding the empire to the east had been dashed. There was, however, one glimmer to his return. He was about to pick a new queen. A queen to replace that one who had so humiliated him before his Greek expedition. A night that he'd no doubt worked hard to forget. For King Xerxes, known in the Bible as King Ahasuerus, the queen drama started in the third year of his reign, and it went like this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the Citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven advisors who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. 
in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Queen Vashti completely embarrassed her husband the king, probably the most powerful man on planet Earth. When he asked for her to come present herself before the people, she refused. Now, that refusal may have been due to the details of the request. It's not clear, but when he asked her to come before the people with her royal crown, it may have been that he wanted her to be wearing only her royal crown and nothing else. Faced with this proposition, Vashti refused, and Ahasuerus was drunk and enraged. So the king turns to his advisors again and says essentially, What should I do with this rebellious woman? And they reply, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. The advisors essentially say that Vashti's example may soon spread throughout the whole kingdom so that all the wives will rebel against their husbands. In this, Vashti hasn't merely done wrong to the king, but also to the whole kingdom. She's set a bad example, they say, and something has to be done about it. They continue. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, so that it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as it was proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. According to the counsel of his advisors, Ahasuerus demotes Queen Vashti, banishes her from his presence, and then makes a decree strengthening the role of men in their homes. He won't have chaos under his watch, and he won't let his former queen have the last laugh in her rebellion. He sends an irrevocable edict to the whole kingdom, and the apparent crisis of authority is averted. It's a few years later that the story picks up again. After Persia's offensive against the Greek states, and after the naval defeat of the great empire of the day. Ahasuerus was defeated, and he was back at the citadel of Susa remembering again his lack of a queen. Next we read this. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Ahasuerus decides on a beauty contest to choose his next queen, and you can imagine the immediate excitement among the young women of Persia, 
A young woman from anywhere who pleased the king could rise from obscurity to become the queen of the empire. She would have riches, access, social standing, and the envy of women all around the empire. It was an amazing opportunity, and no doubt the eligible women would be attempting amplification of their beauty as much as possible with those cosmetics provided by the king. But here's where the story of an empire meets with the story of the Jewish exiles. Next we read this. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, who was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem, to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. From the far reaches of the empire, a people had been exiled. And from those exiles, a young maiden appears in the palace of the Persian king, hiding her past in the hopes of a future. Esther's story begins here, with her father figure Mordecai learning all he can about his adopted daughter in the palace. She would wait there for at least a year, before having her night with the king to see if he was pleased with her. And over that year, she won the favor of many in the palace. But soon her time comes to go to the king. Now when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther wins the royal crown in a single night, as Ahasuerus loves her and finds her better than all the other young maidens in the kingdom. The young Jewess has become the queen of the empire, and yet no one knows her heritage except for her adopted father, Mordecai. A secret only revealed in a time of crisis. Now, soon after Esther becomes queen of the empire, Mordecai becomes involved in a little palace intrigue himself, an involvement that becomes very important in the coming years. Apparently at that time, some of the king's advisors launched a plot to assassinate the king. And of all people, Mordecai catches wind of the plot. He's able to relay the message to Esther, and after an investigation, the traitorous advisors are hanged on the gallows. Mordecai's contributions to foiling the plot are quickly forgotten, but not before they're written in the official records of the king. But soon an even worse villain enters the story. A man apparently descended from ancient enemies of the Jews, who becomes perhaps one of the worst enemies in the whole Bible. We read this starting in chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, 
and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In a pre-Hitler fashion, Haman aims for the extermination of the Jews, the ancient enemy of his people, and the people of Mordecai the Jew. So Haman begins plotting. And after superstitiously casting lots, months after months to find a favorable timing, he finally comes before the king with a request. Haman says this to Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, and they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Haman comes to the king with a reason and with money, both of which appeal to the king very much, so much so that he doesn't even question Haman. He simply hands over his signet ring of authority so that Haman can issue an irrevocable edict in the king's name. And that's exactly what Haman does. We read, Letters of the edict were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The plot to annihilate the Jews has been launched. The people behind the edict have sat down to drink, and everyone else is in chaos and confusion. For Haman, all seems to be going just the way he hoped. Little does he know, the new queen is one of those Jews he's trying to kill. Join us next time as Esther risks death, Haman builds gallows for Mordecai, and Mordecai is paraded through the streets of Susa. All the while, the Jews await their day of impending doom. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023